Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. You know, it's interesting because the more that we have these conversations, the more it makes me reflect on how these things show up in day-to-day life. And just like we've talked about with the neuroscience of it all, that where attention goes, energy flows. And so in our conversations around people, um, I couldn't help but think about how much well, how important it is to talk about empathy and aspects of compassion because it is just an issue with all people. I really think it's another way in which we talk about the fundamentals of being human. And so I wanted to just take another episode to dig a little deeper into what is involved in empathy from more of a neuroscience perspective, as well as like everything, we want it to be able to apply to ourselves. So how we can learn to be more empathetic and compassionate both with ourselves and others. I have to agree. Uh, I think where energy goes... Uh, neurons flow or whatever the (laughs) phrase is. But I I feel that because as we've studied and reflected on empathy and compassion, I've seen the role of empathy and compassion, its importance in everyday society, not just uh, in a face-to-face conversation, but in communities, in society at large, and how important it is because the the aspect of empathy and compassion is collaboration. It's people coming together through something. And that's something I see really missing a lot. There's a lot of, uh, which we'll cover more deeply, where you miss the nuance of things. Like if you're in a face-to-face conversation, you see somebody's visible uh, body language, you see their facial reaction, you see a lot of this data that helps you to, um, to make choices and to better understand your scenario. But empathy and compassion is just such a key participant in what I would consider a healthy community and a healthy, uh, just healthy society that I want to personally learn more about. And as a reflection of that learning, I want to help others to, uh, to kind of pick up what we're learning as well, because it's just so important. Yeah. I, uh, I think as you say that, that concept of seeing, not like literally with our eyes, but with our brains and, One of the things that I think, you know, I can't attest enough to is when we talk about these things uh, in the way in which the brain works and what we know, it's everything is systemic. There's there's systems Mm -hmm. involved. And so when I get a new piece of data, I have to then reallocate that system and sort of how I thought about it. And so there's multiple aspects involved with empathy. And so... Before we get started, I want to talk about sort of the definitions again and sort of expound upon it. And that the perception of suffering in another usually requires this process 
called Empathy, which this is taken from Dan Siegel's book, Aware. And Dan Siegel, if you're not familiar with him, he is a psychiatrist um, who's done a lot of research around neuroscience and created a field called interpersonal neurobiology. But so from this book, he says, empathy can be viewed as having at least five aspects, including emotional resonance, which involves feeling another person's feelings, perspective taking, which is seeing through the eyes of another person, a cognitive understanding, like imagining the mental experiences of another and their meeting, as well as empathetic concern, caring about the well-being of others, and then sympathetic or empathic joy, like feeling happy about another's happiness and success. Yeah. That's a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> well, if I can sort of reduce it um, about what we want to talk about today, it, in face-to-face interactions, like communication usually has this sort of multimodal nature to it. And it involves the processing of visual facial cues, which is what we're talking about in terms of, you know, having the actual data of a face that contributes to our ability to empathize, um, as well as the tone of voice, which I'll talk about in terms of affective prosody. And so when I talk about affect, that I'm, I'm usually referencing like emotion. So... Okay. A-F-F-E-C-T, affect. Not effect. Right, right. <laughs> right. And then the choice of words that we use are semantics. And so in this way, you know, I could say the same sentence and it could have two very different meanings. For example, I could say like, yeah, we'd love for you to come. You're like, yeah, it's okay if you come join us. Or I could be like, yeah, you could join us. And they don't necessarily yeah. mean the same thing. They don't. Right? And it... And you can layer that on with a face, too. So if you just don't hear that and you see somebody say that, not only is it clear by their language and tone and the semantics, as you're saying, the choice of words and the way they say them, but it's also the face they make and the body language or maybe the way they roll their eyes or they turn their face away from you. All these things are just other data points for you to interpret somebody's meaning. Right. And so looking for consistencies as well as discrepancies in that, like in working with people, people over the years, that's, I mean, really part of what I do is like, that's interesting. I'll, I'll make reflective comments and say, well, you said this, but yet the way in which you're acting or the tone of your voice tells me a different message. Because right. oftentimes people aren't necessarily aware or considerate of the, the way in which they convey that to another person. Right. And so ironically, what I'm actually doing is helping somebody build this mental model of themselves, like in their mind's eye. Think of it like we're like empathy in that perspective taking. I hold this sort of clay working model of another person, but also myself. And when I can't do that, I'm going to struggle more in terms of being able to empathize with another individual. Yeah. Well, a lot of how we... uh how we act with others is is a reflection of how we feel and how what our our perspective is. Mm-hmm. You know, if we if we can't see it through somebody else's, we tend to reflect in the world based upon our own experiences. And if you're not able to do what you just said there, it's going to come off as like you can't see from somebody else's perspective. Right. Well, and I, I would offer that one of the challenges really in this is that without 
necessarily conscious awareness. People might presume that if they are empathetic or hold somebody else's feelings in mind, that it actually then feels more submissive or like they are taking a posture of a lower stance. And that really isn't true. Mm-hmm. But it can be very much and because social relationships are incredibly complicated, right? Like all things in life, I wish it was just like, you know, unidimensional. <laughs> but then, right. we'd, then we'd lose so much of the beauty and the flavor of life. But um, it's important that we can recognize sort of the way in which other people affect us and use that as a data point. But that isn't the entirety of the story, I mean, I might interface with somebody, you know, and they might come across as incredibly cold or sterile or just sort of flat, but I I might not have any reason why, or I might infer that it's something that I said when it may have had nothing to do with. all to do with you, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective because that happens often where, you know, you think an interaction went poorly or you know what you're saying there but meanwhile there's a backstory to say you know rewind four hours and something happened in their life they got terrible news or even five minutes prior to that moment they got a text from somebody that just floored them or they're maybe feeling empathy for somebody that they really care about and they're really wanting to express compassion and help them through their pain and they're just they're preoccupied with something else mentally and they're not at all in the moment with you to give you what you need to have an interaction that is uh, is necessary, but it's just not possible in that moment for them. Yeah. So let me sort of talk about the brain structures involved in this. And so um, there is the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex. Say those five times fast. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> but the prefrontal cortex is part of our frontal lobe. And then this anterior cingulate cortex That is typically associated with decision-making and impulse control, but the self-monitoring, what we call perspective-taking and empathy, are all linked to both of these key brain structures. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure how much we've talked about it, maybe a little bit in habits, but our frontal lobe does a lot of what we call higher-order cognitive functions, um, often what I refer to as executive functioning, or people in the field talk about executive function. And if you can associate that with everything an executive assistant does, and that it's speed of information processing, set shifting, attention, concentration, um, moving from one you know, position to another. And so that would make a lot of sense that in this concept of empathy, I have to be able to shift my lens and move it in different places. I mean, in the same way I can stand in one location with my eyes, my gaze fixed on an object in front of me. However, if I move, you know, 30 degrees to the right or move 30 degrees to the left, that's going to change my perspective on the object. And the same thing is true in relationships. Mm -hmm. But I have to be willing to look at, you know, all of these data points if I'm going to try to put together a, a more comprehensive picture of the puzzle. Yeah. Perspective is key. It really is. Right. I mean, your perspective uh, and your judgment of a scenario can totally change based upon just a slight shift in perspective. And what I mean by that is this aspect of empathy. If I could view something from your perspective, Marielle, with your scenario instead of my own, 
well, then I can begin to have compassion for what you're going through and be, be able to really consider what you're struggling with versus how I would view it from my position, which it's all about perspective. And that's what's really, really interesting to me as we study this further is just like perspective is key. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really like what you focus on. Because there's, I mean, even in a room or where you are right now, like if you're in your office or in your home or driving in your car, there's multiple options available to you to focus on. Yeah. But if I'm only focused on one thing, I'm going to lose other peripheral data that might be actually pretty salient. Hmm. How, how do you mean by that? Like, Give me an example. Well, I just think about it in terms of relationships. Like, you don't ever know what somebody is going through unless they tell you. And especially in the workplace, you don't know everybody's backstory. You don't know things that have contributed to the way they respond in the, the way in which they do. And you don't know why they hold fast to certain beliefs or sort of um, will take firm stances on one thing or another. Because everybody's experiences have impacted them. And so you might be in a new workplace and you're working on a team, and you may not know that one of your team members is maybe in the middle of a divorce. Maybe they're in the middle of trying to manage the birth of a child or moving or buying a home or, it's, you know, a major medical concern. I mean, pick anything. Right. But they responded harshly to you in a meeting, and then you're, you get lit or you sort of get so frustrated, like, I can't believe they would ever respond like that and so respond with criticism. Instead of going like, huh, I wonder why. Because I, I really believe, just like kids, all behavior is a form of communication. Yeah. And I don't know. Maybe they just didn't sleep the night before. <laughs> Who knows? But It could be intentional or not intentional. It could just be habitual. It could be autopilot. Right. Or it could be like, hey, from my childhood, I had to stand up and I had to be really brash. I had to like be overbearing to say, this is what I want and you will give it to me. Because maybe that's the family and how they they sort of worked it out. Yeah. That's not good or bad, right or wrong. But recognizing that everybody has a different sort of backstory and factors which have impacted who they are and how they behave. While you're saying this, I'm thinking... Sometimes for me, it's easy to understand something if I can understand the opposite. So if we're talking about empathy and compassion, do they have opposites? What are the opposites of those two things? Is there anything? That's an excellent question. I was thinking maybe entitlement might come into that. I'm not sure if it's a one-to-one, but whenever, and maybe I'm wrong here, but in the scenario you just described, if if someone isn't, isn't giving you the reaction that you want because they have a backstory that disallows them or they're just preoccupied, mm-hmm. And you're frustrated because they didn't give you what you wanted. That's a sense. That's a, a variation of entitlement. You feel entitled to a reaction that you didn't get and receive. And so therefore you place judgment upon them or potentially even lash out at them, shame them, get angry and walk away, quit, you know, quit the job completely and go to another team, move to a different team for reasons that are not true or not as true as they really are. Yeah, so I might even zoom out a little bit and and go, yeah, entitlement would be a part of a bigger whole that I would say rigidity. Right, okay. Cognitive rigidity that I can't move or maneuver into a different place. Like, I mean, this is very present in couples and that the hardest thing about managing a romantic relationship over time is being able to advocate for yourself 
while you still let that person in (laughs) to affect Mm -hmm. you. And so it's challenging to go, okay, I need to really hear this person's expression of how I affected them. But like, I really just want to be right. And I want you to hear me. And like, my feelings count too. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Right. This, this requirement of being right is, is really crippling as well. Yeah. You know, all too often it's about being right versus uh, collaboration or just coming to behavior change or just expressing how you feel because mm-hmm. there's, there's ways you can reframe things. Rather than lashing out at somebody, you can say, when you do this, it makes me feel like that. Sure. Because you know, it's a way to criticize, I would say more in an empathetic way. Because I can describe how I feel and what they've done maybe that made me feel they've wronged me or whatever it might be. But I can describe it as when you when you call me these names or when you say things to me in this tone, it makes me feel like this. It gives them a chance to understand what they've done, how, how that made you feel, and how you can both reflect and collaborate through that negative or positive exchange. Yeah, exactly. So you gave them feedback. Yeah. And you ask for clarification to get that extra data point. Right. Is that true? Is, is right. that what you meant by that? Here's where my brain went. When you did X, my brain went to Y and C and Q and L. <laughs> and the, so do you think in the in the workplace, then this scenario of of uh, the backstory of a coworker and you said you don't know what's going on in somebody's life unless they tell you. Now, in the workplace in particular, maybe it's not always uh, – I, I don't know what what word to use for it. Is it. It's not always okay to know what's going on in like somebody's personal life. Right. But you can show that you have concern for them by saying, hey, I noticed that you were a little off in the meeting today or I noticed that you didn't respond like you did a week ago. Mm-hmm. Hope everything's okay. You know, or, or just, you know, if there's something going on, you don't have to tell me what it is, but I'd love to be there for you however I can be. Is that, what would you re- respond with or s- suggest there? Well, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up, Adam, because I wouldn't say that then you have to know or that right. people have to tell you right. what's going on. So I just know that there's something going on. That's well, that's what's important. Something is happening. You don't need to know about, but it's affecting me in these ways. And I need you to give me some slack. Yeah. But I would say that I always work to hold space for other people in that way. Like, And even if it is fundamentally, like, they're human too. And I don't have to know what else might be going on with them. But I could say to them, like, hey, I didn't understand why you did X, Y, or Z. And so then you're not even making it about them, but rather going, I'm curious because here's my data file for you. And I know that this is typically the way in which you respond or how how we interact. And it was an outlier to that. So... You know, I I was confused. Like, I want to work together well. I want to get this project done. Do you have an issue with the deadline? Do you have an issue with the way in which I'm talking about completing it? Like, let's collaborate. Right. So it sounds like pliability and flexibility is a pretty crucial role, too, in relationships. Because if you're not flexible, bendable, pliable, whatever, however you want to phrase that, mm-hmm. if you're rigid, right, right that's only going to... That's only going to, you know, come out negative. I'm not sure if if negativity is the the way it is, but it's going to be difficult for you to flex. Right. To enable change or to what you've said before, recalculate. Yeah. You know, accept new data, make, you know, analyze that data, make a new plan and iterate towards a new action. 
Yeah. And so one of the other things involved with this flexibility would be what research of researchers have discovered as mirror neurons. And right. so mirror neurons are these neurons within the brain that help us sort of get access to another person's emotional experience. And so there's a, an action component in it that it was first discovered actually with monkeys and this sort of mimicry that occurred by watching somebody else do an action. Well, in the same way, I can sort of watch somebody else walk through something in terms of an emotional experience. And if I'm holding space for them in my mind, like my body physiologically, the, these mirror neurons come, come to play. Is that why people cry when they watch movies or certain movies because their mirror neurons are firing because they're watching somebody go through a situation and they're empathizing with them and can't help but encapsulate themselves mm -hmm. into their scenario and feel what they're feeling? Mm -hmm. Is that why? Yes. Okay. So is that why anybody cries at anything when it's like, say, movie related because they're think that's of, what's happening? Yeah. Think about it sort of like this emotional contagion, right? So that's interesting to put it that way. And we've said mirror neurons several times, but this emotional contagion, I, I believe, is actually a, a better subtitle for mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so some of this emotional contagion or mirror neurons, like the research has been rooted in aspects of pain, because if I can recognize sort of the suffering of another, I'm likely to respond in a different way. Right? right, because I have an awareness of what it feels like to hurt and what painful stimuli evokes within me. I, I want to share this research because I just think it's super fascinating and will be helpful to people. But um, what researchers looked at was um, the way in which they used rats. And so they worked to look at rats in the sense of how animals were more likely to freeze after watching another rat receive an electrical shock if they had been shocked themselves in the past. So the shock freezes the, the rat and they're taking on the, the, I guess, effect of the shock because they've been shocked before. Right. Okay. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting. However, when researchers inhibited this region, which is similar to that anterior... Uh, anterior cingulate cortex in the brain, it reduced their responses to another rat's distress, but not their fear of being shocked themselves. Okay, so there is this sense of socially triggered fear, according to Kaiser's work, the researcher. Uh, so this is in rats, though. Has this, where has the study gone to say that this is true for humans? Well, we don't we, know yet. Well, we can't shock humans. Right. Okay. Well, okay, so, but we can, we can, uh, we don't have to shock them, Mario. Maybe we can just like prick them with a needle, like you might be doing for, let's say, a blood test or you know, like a sure. uh, glucose test or something like that. You can do something smaller that is uh, okay to do to a human, but is a similar type of thing. So has this, okay. has anything, any variation of this test been applied to humans to justify it in our behaviors? Well, so. Klaus Lamm, who's out of the University of Vienna, looked at the processes that regulate the firsthand pain and those that cause empathy for pain through a, a number of different studies as it relates to the influence of painkillers. 
Okay, so you take a drug that helps reduce, so an opiate of sorts. And so in these experiments, participants who took this placebo painkiller reported lower pain ratings after receiving a shock than those who did in the control group. So the control group was the one who didn't get any sort of buffering (laughs) experience to the pain. Okay, But when those same participants watched a confederate get shocked, they reported a similar drop in their perception of the actor's pain. So what I'm saying is the ones who got the painkiller, they still perceived that similar drop by watching somebody else's. Okay? So if you reduce people's self-experienced pain, if you induce this analgesic effect, that not only helps people to deal with their own pain, but vicariously or also reduces empathy for the pain of another person. Well, so what you're seeing is painkillers help to reduce pain, but it also disables my ability to recognize somebody else's pain because my pain is reduced. Right. I don't give it as much credence or sort of validity because I don't feel it. Right. Okay. Which is happening a lot in society, I would say. Like, there's a lot of a lot of pain being expressed that is hard for somebody or, dare I say it, uh, not possible mm-hmm. because they haven't experienced the pain themselves. So to expect or desire or feel entitled even, since I said that earlier, uh, to empathy and compassion, it's, it's, it's a learned behavior for one, but it's also difficult to give because the pain hasn't been experienced themselves. Right. The perspective is in their way. So – Lam, this researcher from the University of Vienna, says that empathy for pain, empathy for pain is grounded in representing others' pain within one's own pain systems. So if I am, you know, very aware of pain, guess what I'm very going, of my own pain, like I got a big robust file, I know pain, hi, you're my friend. I also will use that data file to make sense of another person's pain. And if I'm very low, like what pain? Nothing hurts. We just like buck up and n- deal with it. What's your problem? We are right. ap- we're apt to also do that f- for others. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, so this is why I think there's so much more we can look at and talk about with this. And while we could make inferences about what this means, you know, to this or to that, like we just, this is what we know for now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And going. It's always in flux. Yeah. And so if I know that, and like, if I know, like, I think about it, even in my own life, if I'm more stressed with what's going on, I also wouldn't necessarily have space for somebody else's pain in the same sort of way. Not because I can't be empathetic, right? Here's that multiple systems, but rather like I'm full <laughs> mm-hmm. and I just can't take on more. And so this is why it's also helpful to have other pieces of information or like we've talked about before that that name it to tame it. Right. I'm glad you said that because that's what really helped me kind of a light bulb came on when I was uh, reading Aware from Dr. Daniel Siegel, which we mentioned earlier. And this definition of, of compassion really blew me away. You know, the definition based on his book says compassion can be defined as the way we sense the suffering of another imagine ways of decreasing that suffering and then make attempts to help another reduce their suffering 
perception, imagination, and action are each a part of what compassion entails. Mm -hmm. So when I sort of like unravel that to me, this whole name of the tame it, this define it kind of scenario, like I think all too often, uh, at least from my perspective, since that's my uh, that's my data file, so to speak, mm-hmm. is that not I wasn't that aware of what compassion truly was or what it was to deliver it. You know, what was involved in being compassionate? I knew the word. I knew what it was, but I didn't know quite the way that Daniel Siegel described it in aware. And once I got that, it, like things just started to happen. I started to see it more often. I started to become more uh, understanding of and desiring of delivering compassion. And that's what's really, really interesting is this name of the tame it is once you've once you can sort of encapsulate a large amount of context into a single word phrase, give you know, for lack of better terms, maybe even a meme uh, of sorts, it's much easier to act it out and see it in life. Right. And I think you touched on something, which is why, you know, we have these conversations is that our brain's neural circuitry is always malleable and can be rewired through this concept of neuroplasticity, this neural flexibility. And so one's tendency for empathy and compassion is never fixed. It's not a fixed thing, which means we can practice putting ourselves in someone else's shoes to reinforce these neural networks. And I want to talk about some strategies that we can do to help with that. But before we do, the one last thing I really want to talk about, and we've sort of embedded it in our discussion, but the role of facial expression is super important. Because when I'm looking at faces, it really helps me understand what potential feeling somebody is having. And that there's some, you know, conflict because researchers all have different sort of data points and what they discover about whether or not these are universal. But there are some that generally speaking, like facial expressions are similar across cultures. So if someone is sad, you know, it's it's interesting. When I first started graduate school, that is our most fundamental therapeutic course. <laughs> Like, how do you do therapy was really just this concept of what we called active listening. Like, so could you look at a person, sit with a person, hear what they were talking about and accurately identify their emotional experience? That's tough. Well, I would think that it's pretty easy and that like you just could do this, but maybe that's not being empathetic to the variations of people and that that isn't a skill that everybody has. But people, people didn't pass the class, sometimes repeatedly, because, right. you know, they would see someone's face and be like, wow, I bet you were that, you know, made you happy. And it's like, oh, no, no, like that was tragic for them. Mm. And they just totally missed the boat. And so, you know, when we're trying to work with people, like, it's so much more helpful when we look in their face. And I even tell like my kids, my family, I'm like, I need your face. Like I need right. to see your face. <laughs> look at me. Even look at my eyes. Let's let's connect eyes to eyes. There's a lot that happens when that happens. Mm-hmm. Can we can we give people um, some tools then? So what came to mind to me was if I'm having an an interaction, uh, pick a scenario, uh, even a format or a medium. What data is missing from this? conversation, this collaboration, this communication process that is not enabling me to have empathy and compassion for this person, if the scenario has gone south, let's say. Mm-hmm. 
you know, what what tools can we put in people's belts to say what data is missing? Because what data is crucial, right? You you mentioned faces, but what other, what other data in communication processes are important to provide context? Yeah, well, thankfully, there's some people who like do this work and help my job make it easier for me. Okay, good. <laughs> and so, um, this. Um, uh, there was a Harvard psychiatrist who actually utilized the acronym of empathy, <laughs> the word itself, to help people remember the things that are helpful in it. And so E stands for eye contact. Okay. In Western societies, we say, you know, that the eyes are the window to the soul. And so when I see people's eyes, like, I mean, I notice this all the time in working with patients. So they might not be able to say something, but I can see like the glistening in their eyes, which indicates to me that I, I touch something sensitive for them. Eye contact. Then M stands for muscles for facial expression. So we, this is the mirror neurons that I mimic the facial expression of the other person. Like if you watch sometime, maybe you pay attention this week when you're having coffee with a friend, you might notice that your body posture, your face actually reflects um, the facial expression of the person with whom you're engaging. And right. I'll have to go back and find this research. But um, one research study I came across some years ago talked about how people who've been partners for long periods of time, people always comment how they end up looking similar. And the empathy research talked about how when you mimic the other person's facial expression, you tend to age in the same facial sort of creases that then you end up looking similar because you've mimicked mm. or sort of empathized with their emotions over and over and over again. You could tell a highly empathetic uh, mirror neuron firing couple if you see, you know, somebody in their 60s or 80s or whatever still together, of uh -huh. course, and looking similar. Yeah. So P stands for posture. Okay. How we sit, like, again, there's body language. You know, if arms are crossed, that might come across as closed. But also bear in mind, it could just be that somebody is quite cold. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, A stands for affect. This is our scientific term for emotion. T, tone of voice. Talk about prosody, right? The manner in which I say things. And H, hearing the whole person. So not just what they're saying, but paying attention to the person in terms of not judging them, recognizing that they're a human. They get to have their own challenges and struggles. Even if I don't know what they are, it doesn't mean they don't have them. And then finally, the why, your response. Emotions are contagious. Mm -hmm. Emotions at the most fundamental level are energy, which is interesting because I think about like anxiety, like an incredibly contagious emotion that's hard to hold. Yeah. And so recognize that your response or your choice in responding can influence how that social interaction goes. And so if I come across as cold or condemning or critical or, you know, like we've talked about before, like name calling, that is not going to help foster more of that shared understanding. Like we all have these social groups. And I would think, especially in the workplace, when people are working with teams, like you have an idea of what that world is like and sort of the times, the deadlines, the expectations. And so to recognize that like they're in it with you. So yeah. they kind of have a sense of what challenges you're trying to navigate. And maybe even looking at empathy of like, 
hold on, they're human. And so they're on my, they're still on my team. I want to start there and recognizing like everybody gets to hold that fundamental space. What I'm seeing in this empathy acronym is uh, a lot of this is missing in digital interactions. So let's say uh, comments on a blog post, interactions on Twitter, uh, maybe even comments on a podcast or comments on, you know, a scenario where you're collaborating around software development and you're expressing your concerns for, let's say, in a code review where you're expressing ideas or criticism uh, around somebody's code quality or what they wrote or how they solved the problem. Most of those interactions are digital. And so you don't have facial expression. You don't really have posture. Affect might be in there emotionally, maybe through the nuance of of the hearing the whole person, the H of empathy, right. hearing the whole person. Tone of voice really isn't there unless you're sort of bringing that process, as you mentioned before. And I guess that's kind of there if, uh, and this is where even first languages may come into play, where as we become more and more of a global community, we have more and more people from different languages. And a lot of documentation, a lot of software development is done in English. And so that requires potentially even quite an understanding of the English language or the exact opposite. If it's in Chinese or uh, Portuguese or something, then you've got to have the same prosody in a different language. And that's difficult. Sure. And your response is obviously there. But, you know, a lot of that's missing in digital interactions. Yeah. And so, I mean, I would ask because one of the things is that I always want to put into action that which I'm asking others to do as well. And so you've made changes at ChangeLog as based on yeah. some of the stuff we've been talking about, right? Yeah. And so what is one of the key things that you guys have changed with how you do podcasting to incorporate well, for a long time, Yeah, for a long time, we never did uh, video calls with the parties, at least on the podcast. And that was mainly a technological limitation by the way we chose to record our podcasts. And then we learned, I think, mainly through, so I guess a little tiny backstory here is that this podcast, Brain Science You're Listening To, actually has been in the making for way longer than it's actually been in production. I think we began a year prior to actually even publishing anything because we were really just uh, riffing on the idea and sort of playing out what could we do together, how could it work out, and life experiences have changed to, to allow us to come together and do this podcast. But it's been quite a while, and so through our relationship and the different things we've, um, the conversations we've had, I've learned more about empathy, and I realized how important it would be for us to have, uh, in this case, we're using Zoom to do a video call. They're not a sponsor, but thank you for this great software that makes it possible, and we're able, you and I, while the world may not see us, at least you and I can have this conversation in a slightly more data-driven way, which is I can see your face, right? I can yeah. see you nod your head even though the audience doesn't get to hear you because that's not part of the conversation. I at least can have a in a affective position with you because I see your emotion. Even though you're not saying it, you're nodding your head, whatever, I can, I can interpret that. And so that's one of the biggest things we've changed, which has been – insanely impactful. I never thought that it would be that important until I learned how important it was to have a face-to-face -face interaction. Even though you're in the Seattle area and I'm in the Houston area, we are many, many miles away from each other. We can still have an empathetic position in our conversations in this show and other shows because of just video and how novel of an idea is that, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, but it really gets at the way in which we're designed and that it makes a difference to be able to see a whole person. And I think that, you know, the tech field has been making efforts to, as a whole, to sort of incorporate these things to recognize, like, within remote workforces, like, this is a great thing. And it allows for some other amazing things for this work life balance and sort of distributed workforces across the country or countries. But in what way can you get together, like with people, because there's a very different, you know, um, exchange when you can actually see someone touch someone, you know, hear their tone of voice as opposed to just words on a page. You know, and I think about it even in learning different languages. It's one thing to be able to, you know, understand the words. It's another thing to say it. And -hmm. it's another thing to be able to write it. You know, I remember I was um, a young adolescent and I had a sibling who was an exchange student in another country. And I had some like basic fundamental knowledge of the language. But they the people that we were with just thought it was so humorous to sort of use all of these other nuanced languages and um, sort of um, what's the word? Slang? But, yeah, thank you. <laughs> that well, I was I, thinking, I was, I was actually thinking like, oh, that sounds like slang. <laughs> and so <laughs> I couldn't understand it. And then it made it so much harder for me to engage with them. And once I understood what they were doing, then I could pick up little nuggets like here and there to put it together. But my level of comprehension of what they might have been trying to convey was far less because I had far less data. That's why there's the word uh, or the phrase actually insider jokes. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. you're sitting there with, let's say, two friends and another friend comes along. Well, the two friends have hung out more recently and there's some sort of insider information they're joking about and laughing about. And the other person's on the outside like, what are you talking about? Well, that's a variation of slang and it's not an inclusive or right. an inviting action. You can obviously invite them in. It doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. It just means that they're going to be isolated. They're going to be differentiated outside of the scenario because they don't have the insider knowledge of this funny joke or thing that happened. And they feel ostracized in a way or just, I guess, not included. Right. And so how might it look different if people were, one, aware of that and two, even advocated for themselves around that and to say, hey, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I want to be a part of that. Like, what are you referencing when you say X, Y or Z? And I think about even today, how many words are used in multiple ways in different contexts. And so if somebody uses a word, that might not be the other person's understanding of that word. Yeah. And so then they respond as based on their perception of said word. <laughs> wow. And then you add to that how fast information flies. So, you know, something could be, you know, in the last week, a word I said on the show could have, you know, become politically incorrect. Or something, some, some, something could happen to a phrase I've said in the show, which I'm not even sure if that's happened. I'm just hypothetically speaking here, of course, hopefully. Um, and I'm not aware. Right. But because the world moves so fast, we expect everyone to be keeping up. Right. And that's impossible. That's impossible. <laughs> it that's why is. I think it's so important to give people this, this, uh, this tool belt of, you know, if you're having an interaction Think about what data is missing from this interaction or this collaboration or this conversation that made it not go the way you expected it to go. So if you're in a conversation and it's not going the way you expected, mm-hmm. question what data is missing and maybe use use the empathy acronym as a way to self-analyze what data is missing and 
do your best to gather that data to recalculate what is actually happening in that conversation and why it may have gone south. Right. And so other research also has noted that the way that sort of compassion and empathy can be trained is through this like mindfulness training or what some people might say like loving kindness. There's different options in terms of meditation today, but going how I always think about how could I replay, even if I had an exchange that didn't go well or I felt offended or somebody else was offended by me, that I might practice after the fact, identifying either sort of writing it out or having a conversation with another person and saying, here are two other alternative ways in which I could have responded. Here's a way in which I could have responded more lovingly. And because that way, I'm actually practicing outside of the live event so that over time, I'm approximating the live event because I'm practicing like, hey, brain, when these things occur, here's the alternative play to run. Mm-hmm. And you reduce the sort of threat because it's not the actual live event yet. <laughs> and then the other thing is, is really creating your own internal file of this from a sort of conceptual perspective. This is where exercise or sort of sports is really good. And so physical activity that puts your body and mind in touch with sort of disagreeable experience, like some might consider it sort of masochistic or sort of like, you know, suffering, like in that sense of like hurting oneself for a greater good. Self-inflicted, yeah. Purposeful suffering that you're (laughs) doing to yourself. Not in a sort of injurious way, but rather like functional and going, you know, I want to, and I talk about this a lot with patients about differentiating pain. Because if I put all of my pain into one vat and say all pain is created equal, then any even sense of discomfort goes to that file. The file is retrieved, and then I utilize that to play out. Right. And not all discomfort is negative. No. It's actually positive and has positive effects. Right. I mean, even thinking about sort of being winded when I'm doing, you know, significant cardiovascular exercise, like that's uncomfortable for me. I don't love that. But recognizing like this is moving me in a direction of greater health and it will end. <laughs> right. So but so the more robust, the the broader, the bigger that file is, the easier it is for me to then utilize that as a frame of reference in my responses to other people. And then lastly, giving back. Like when I volunteer, when I engage in pro-social behavior, like when I give without an expectation of receipt, I practice this sort of loving kindness live. Like the person didn't do anything to earn, to have a sense of merit around why I'm treating them in this way, but I'm practicing giving to others because I can't help myself. That's what we do as humans and a social species that, you know, I help another person and they help another person. And you never know the way in which you can change the world with one small act of kindness. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Brain Science. If you haven't yet, please join us on this journey. We have so much to explore. Subscribe to this podcast at changelaw.com slash brain science. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Overcast and anywhere else you can get podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. We're at Brain Science FM. You can also join our Slack community. It's free to join. Talk about all things brain science with me, Marielle, and the rest of the community. And if you have topics or suggestions for the show, we want to hear them. Email us, editors at changelaw.com. 
huge thanks to our partners Fastly, Rollbar, and Linode. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed to get all of our podcasts. Head to changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. It's one feed to rule them all. Get all of our shows plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you again soon.